Will y'all, we bump it up a little bit? Make it a little bit warmer? They're shivering. One uh, announcement we've got, I mentioned last week, our children's ministry volunteers, they run through, I think today is their last small group Sunday, so we need uh, volunteers throughout the summer. Uh, we need 35 people every week between 9 and 11 to take care of our zero through birth through 12, uh, so we need you to sign up for that. If you're wondering, should I sign up? The answer is yes. If Stonebridge is your church, we need you to sign up. If everybody does a little bit then nobody's got to do too much. You can sign up on Volunteer Spot if you're familiar with that website. If you're not, you can just see Penny, and she can help orient you uh, to what you need to know. We've been looking at Abraham's life. Uh, Sarah, his wife, has kind of been in the background, and today we're going to look at her a little bit. She's been a supporting player in all of this, and today she takes center stage, not necessarily in the best way, uh, but she does. So Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, that's Sarah, Abram, that's Abraham, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. We could probably spend all day on that. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now, she, now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Uh, so we'll pause right here. Uh, just orient you to what's going on. So Abram and Sarah, 10 years ago, had received this promise. And to be fair, all we know is the promise came to Abraham. We don't know that Sarah ever had any direct uh, revelation from God. But we know that God said to Abraham very clearly, I'm going to make a nation out of you. That's one of the promises. Last week we looked in chapter 15, Abraham was beginning to get frustrated. And he was saying to God, all of these things that you're giving to me are wonderful, the land and the money and the livestock, but it doesn't do me any good because I don't have an heir. So everything you've given to me, I'm going to have to give to Eleazar, who's my servant. I don't have, it. I don't have a son. And what God says to him, if you remember, he takes him outside, shows him all the stars. He says, by your own flesh, you're going to have a flesh and blood son. By your own flesh and blood, you're going to have an heir and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That was this promise that God made to Abraham. So at some point, so that was when Abraham's 75, Sarah's 65. Fast forward, we're 10 years in, 85 and 75. Abraham's 75, Sarah's, or Abraham's 85, Sarah's 75. In that interim, that nothing, no, no children. So custom was, if you were unable to have a child, it was always assumed to be the woman's fault um, if, if there was no baby, she was considered barren. That was a curse. And if that was the case, then either the husband could take another wife in order to have children, or this thing, it's basically surrogacy without all the medical technology. That could happen. So Hagar is Sarah's chief slave. She's basically her personal assistant. She gives Hagar 
to Abraham. I'm not certain how that conversation took place around the dinner table, but he said, okay. And then Hagar gets pregnant, begins to treat Sarah contemptuously. The word is she begins to think or treat her lightly because now Hagar is elevated in her own eyes uh, compared to Sarah because Hagar's been blessed with a child. Sarah is still barren, therefore she's cursed. Sarah blames Abraham. Again, not certain how that plays for him. This is all your fault. And he's going, I I just did what you asked me to do, but that's the way it plays out. Abraham says, she's your responsibility to do whatever you want. Sarah begins to treat her poorly. And then Hagar runs away. Huge risk for a pregnant woman to leave the household that she was a part of. So she's living in the desert on her own. That's how poorly Sarah was treating her that Hagar thought, it'd be better for me to be pregnant in the desert by myself than to live as a part of Abraham's household. Remember a couple of weeks ago we looked, Abraham in his household has 318 trained men. This is a massive thing that he's got. But Hagar can't escape Sarah because she's her personal assistant and she just says, I can't live with what this woman is doing to me any longer. So she runs away. For us, parallel, most of you, are never going to be in this situation. If you are, please come see me before you say yes to anything. So, it's not, not a parallel for us, but there is. It's interesting. If you read Genesis 3 and you read Genesis 16, very similar language. In both cases, you have a wife who took something, fruit or slave, gave that something to her husband, and then he, t- and he took it from her. And kind of the husband in both cases is passive. He's spiritually lazy. He just does what his wife kind of puts in front of him. In both cases, in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 16, the husband had heard very clearly from God, this is what I'm doing. If you go back and read Genesis 2, before Eve was even created, God said to Adam, listen, you can eat from all these trees, but you can't eat from that one. That word was to Adam. We don't know what, if anything, revelation Eve got from the Lord. And when Eve said to Adam, hey, why don't you try this? He said, okay, even though he knew better. Same thing here. We looked last week. God takes Abraham out, shows him every star in the sky, says you're going to have a flesh and blood heir. Now you can say, well, he didn't say it was going to be from Sarah. I would imagine that there's an, it's implied because they're married. Two or one, promise made to one is a promise made to both of them. No indication in the Bible that God's ever pro-polygamy. So it's not, it's not a... He, but he goes along with it. It's custom. Absolutely was, nobody would have raised an eye, brow, at what's going on. They wouldn't have batted an eye at what's going on here. But Abraham just goes along with it. So here's my encouragement. If in this room you're a husband and or a father, don't be spiritually lazy. You need to be diligent spiritually. This isn't about headship and any of that stuff. I'm just saying There's a responsibility as a husband and a father spiritually in your home, and you need to own that. What does that look like practically? Pray with and pray for your wife, and don't make her ask you. Just do it. If if you've never done that, it can be incredibly awkward to say, okay, let's pray together. It's, It's easy to say a blessing around the table. This is kind of another step. You don't need to pray for 10 minutes. The food gets cold. So blessing for the food, this is separate. You and her, you, just need to, you don't have to do it every day, but it needs to be a regular part of your rhythm. A couple of times a week, you just need to pray with her and pray for her. And just so you know, it's not a time to pray things like this. 
God, I pray that you would give her grace to realize how lucky she is to be married to a man like me. It's not that. God, I pray you'd help her get dinner on the table at six. Those are not the things that you're praying. It's not a chance to tell her where she's doing wrong or how she needs to do better. You just bless her. Whatever's going on in her life, that's what you're praying about. With whatever's happening, I'm looking at Marnie, last week of school for her. So Bill is praying for her about her last week of school. doesn't matter if it affects him at all. That's all he's doing. God, I pray for Marnie for her last week that she'd finish well. I pray she'd hear from her kids. And they would know how, she would know how impactful she was in their life this year. And all of those types of things. She'd have a great summer. That's what he's praying. So those are the kinds of things, as a husband, you need to be doing with your wife. And, as a dad, you need to be doing with your kids. It's trickier as they get older, for sure. I'm trying to, everybody doesn't go to bed at the same time, and they're in different rooms, and most of the time, honestly, you, you just want them to be quiet so you can have some free time. But figure out what that looks like. And again, it doesn't have to be every night, but figure out how to do that, how to pray for your children. And if, if, if it's incredibly difficult for you to pray out loud, well, start praying silently. Go in when they're asleep, put a hand on their head and pray for them. And do the same thing for your wife. And then get to the point where you can pray out loud. Another thing I would encourage you to do is to begin to ask God what he wants to do in your family. That's what Abraham had that. God said, hey, here's what I'm going to do in your family. And so Abraham ideally could have said to Sarah, hey, listen, I know it's been ten years. And I know you're desperate for a kid. This is not going to end well. There's no way in the world it's going to end well for me to have a kid with another woman. You're no, who is okay with that? No, you're not going to be fine. That's not what God intends for us. Ideally, that's what Abraham could have said to her in that moment of weakness for Sarah. And so as a husband slash father, ideally, you, should, you have enough sense of what God is wanting to do in your family that you can help steer through some of those murky waters. Again, everything that Sarah and Abraham did was culturally acceptable. And it was, for us, it would have been legal. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, everybody does that. No problem. Doesn't make it right. And for us, as husbands and fathers, there's plenty of things that are socially acceptable that aren't right. And the only way for us to know the difference is to have some sense from God of what he's calling our family to. What are the things as a family that we need to value? What are the things as a family that we need to pursue? I'm not saying that you have to have a family mission statement. That's fine. You just have to have a sense of what God is saying to you about your wife and your kids. And it's not husbands are not better than wives or any of that. It's just a a role as a husband and a father. You need to have a sense of those things. And then that can help you navigate your family through those things. So, pray with your family. Ask God. Some people say, well, my wife is just more spiritual than me. One, who cares? Two, then grow. I mean, that's the option. It's not... It's not a static equation. Well, she's more spiritual than me, so she should lead. No, she shouldn't. You should grow. That's what it means. If you want to be a, if you want to say, hey, men lead, that means you do the hard things first. That's what it means to lead. So grow in those areas. And don't let the fact that you don't feel like you're spiritual enough rob you from your responsibility and the privilege of praying with and for your family and leading them spiritually. You know enough. Like, you, the Holy Spirit lives within you if you're a Christian. He's got everything you need is either already within you or you have access to. So just move past that excuse. That's just the enemy trying to rob you 
of something that God wants to bless you with. So don't allow that lie to keep you from engaging spiritually with your family. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You're the God who sees me, she said. I've now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Beer Lahay Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So real quick on this. Angel of the Lord, sometimes in the Old Testament, is an angel. Sometimes it's God. In this case, the angel of the Lord is God. So God appears to Hagar in some form or fashion. We know that because he's speaking first person as God. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to do this. That's God. Only God can do those things. Angels can't. So that's God appearing to her. And Hagar recognizes to the point that she names God. She says, I'm going to name you as the God who sees because you've seen me here in the desert all by myself. Notice what he says to her. You've got to go back and submit to Sarah. I know it was miserable, but that's the best place for you. Remember one of the things God said to Abraham. Those who bless you will be blessed. So blessing for Hagar and her son will come through association with Abraham, even though it's going to be a miserable place for Hagar to live. When we look at Genesis 21, it never gets better between Sarah and Hagar. She, it's not good. And then when Sarah finally has Isaac, as soon as she can, she kicks Hagar and Ishmael back out into the desert. There's never a good relationship there. So imagine it's pretty difficult on Hagar for the number of years that they live there, probably close to 18, 19 years that Hagar lives under Sarah's authority, probably miserable the entire time. But in order to enjoy the blessings of Abraham that God wants to pour out on Abraham, they need to stay close to him. And so that's the promise for her. I don't know if that's encouraging to you or not, but that's the way things played out in Hagar's Life. This idea of Ishmael being a donkey, we would kind of see that as an insult. Not an insult there. There's actually, that's it. It's a O-N-A-G-E-R. It's a donkey that lives in the desert. It's impossible to tame or domesticate. It's wild. And that's basically what Ishmael is. He's, um, chapter 21, he moot, when, he's, when uh, Sarah kicks him out of the house, it says he lives in the desert. He becomes a great archer. He enjoys, so one side, you can say, oh, he's a free man. He lives in the desert. On the other side, he's having to live in the desert, which isn't awesome. So that's just a statement of fact, and so is this idea about hostility. I don't think it's a curse on Ishmael that there be hostility between him and his brothers. It's a statement of fact. Through Isaac, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people um, come, and through Ishmael you have the Arab people, and we see even now today there's hostility between those tribes. Those Those half brothers, they never get along, and their descendants still don't get along. So I think that's just a statement of fact of what's going to happen, how this is going to play out, which really ties into where I want us to spend the rest of our time. In chapter 12, uh, verse 10, there's a famine 
and Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. If you remember this, we looked at it a few weeks ago. And Abraham gets scared. The Bible says he's afraid that he's going to get killed because someone's going to see his wife and think she's beautiful and say, hey, I want her to be my wife. So I'm going to knock off her husband and then she'll be mine. So what he says to Sarah is, I want you to tell everybody you're my sister. And Sarah does that. And then Pharaoh sees her and wants her. And so he pulls her into his harem. Now, when he does that, he pays Abraham for Sarah. It's a bride price or a dowry, however you want to see that. We know he gave um, Abraham livestock, and we know he gave him gold and silver. Most likely, he also gave him Hagar. She was an Egyptian. Most likely, that's how Hagar gets into the mix. And we see how that plays out in their life. It's not to say that if Hagar wasn't around, Sarah wouldn't have given a different servant to Abraham. But maybe, who knows? Maybe that servant would have had a different demeanor. Maybe that servant wouldn't have begun to treat Sarah poorly after she became pregnant. Maybe then Sarah wouldn't have seen her as a rival. Who knows how history plays out if those things had been different, if it had been someone other than Hagar. And there's no way that Hagar gets connected to the family if Abraham doesn't go to Egypt and lie about Sarah being his sister. The, The ripples of choosing to step outside of faith, they they go. Now, for us, it's not going to be international ripples for thousands of years, for sure. We're not in that position. But the choices that we make out of fear, which is what Abraham did, or out of doubt, which is what Sarah did. Hers was from a position of doubt. Ten years without a baby. She's done. It's a long time to wait. And she's she's beginning to wonder and question and doubt, is this ever going to happen And so what she does is she sees an opening. Well, God just promised a kid to you, not necessarily through me, so let's do this. And here's Hagar. So she moves from a place of doubt. In chapter 12, Abraham moves from a place of fear. And in both instances, the ripples of those choices continue even today. Again, for us, the consequences won't be that global. But there's a sense for us, this is not to make you afraid of making a decision, But just to say, we want to make sure, as much as we're able, to say, I want to make decisions from a place of faith. That's what we've been looking at with Abraham. We've said faith, that's the key. Faith is not what I think, it's not what I feel. Faith is trust, it's reliance, it's confidence, it's standing on the chair. It's not saying I believe or I think or I feel the chair will hold me up. It's actually standing on the chair. And we said faith is the means or the instrument by which we access the grace of God. So if the grace of God is the water in the cup, faith is the straw. That's how I get it into me. That's why I get God's blessing, his grace into me is through faith. It's the only instrument available. Only by faith do I access the grace of God. That's how important it is. Without faith, I can't please God because I'm not putting my trust in him and he's looking for relationship for me, which is based on trust. And without faith, I can't access the grace of God. So I'm pretty much stuck apart from it. Huge thing for us to begin to get deep in our hearts. What is biblical faith? Abraham does wonderful. He's the father of faith. You don't have to bat a thousand. He does wonderful. We see this episode in chapter 12 where he blows it, and in chapter 16 where he appears to be passive, and he gives in uh, to what Sarah is saying, probably from a place of desperation and pain and hurt and doubt. Some of you husbands can probably imagine this scenario where it's been 10 years where she's devastated and feels cursed and is going, something has got to change. Many of you would be, most of us, many of us would, be, would say, well, whatever I can do to make it better. Not necessarily the best thing, but you can maybe sympathize 
with where he's coming from. So for us, if you're going to go along with the Lord, you're going to have to learn what does it look like for me to operate from a place of faith, trust, confidence, reliance on God. And at some point along the way, you're going to have to wait. This is 10 years for Abraham and Sarah. It's going to be another 15 before she actually has a kid. 25 years total that she's waiting. I'm not saying you're going to have to wait 25 years, but you're going to have to learn how to wait. And so am I. What does that mean for us? Patience and self-control. Two things everybody loves and other people don't necessarily want to cultivate in ourselves. Patience, self-control. Here's some stats. Women, if you're average, of course y'all are not, 90 minutes to get ready. Anybody? 10 minutes in the shower? Yes? 30 on your makeup? Nobody's admitting that because it would make you feel vain to say you spent 30 minutes on your face. 24 on your hair? 26 deciding what to wear and then putting it on? Absolutely! We've all seen the pile of clothes. Guys, we're about 11 minutes. Women, that's a full-length movie for you. Feature film. Guys, we just get to the first commercial break in a regular show. Two minutes, what was it, five in the shower? Two shaving, one on your hair? No. Three minutes getting dressed? Only in the dark, right? Otherwise, it's just pants and a shirt. It doesn't take three minutes. Because you can't find your shoes. Average Atlantan, 69 hours a year sitting in traffic. Three days. Average American, 68 minutes a day waiting somehow, in line, on the phone, waiting for your food. So that's 68 minutes. If you live to be 70, that's three years of your life you're going to spend waiting. That's not fun to think about, is it? Three years of your life you're going to spend waiting. So is patience just being good at waiting? In a sense, you could say yes. That's patience. What does it mean to be patient? It means I'm good at waiting. Biblically, patience is an inner is an inner peace, or maybe this is better, an inner rest. Let's use that word. An inner rest, an inner calm in the midst of difficult circumstances. So patience is an inner rest or an inner calm in the midst of difficult circumstances. If you have that, then that makes you good at waiting. If you have that inner peace and that inner calm in the midst of difficult circumstances then you will be good at waiting. If you don't have that, then you won't. So in that sense, yes, patience is good at waiting, is being good at waiting, but biblically there's something underneath that. The reason you're good at waiting is because you have this inner peace or calm in the midst of difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances can come from several places. It can come from other people. That idea of patience in the Bible shifts in this direction of forbearance. We don't have time to talk about it, so we're just, I'm going to move past it. All you need to know for now, is if that's the issue for you, what the Bible counsels you to do, if somebody is creating difficult circumstances for you, biblically what it looks like for you to be patient with them is to hang in with them, to not cut them off, which is extraordinarily difficult, particularly when they're killing you. You see those verses there. That's the direction of patience when it comes to people. Forbearance. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to continue to forgive you. I'm going to carry these grievances. I'm going to carry your burdens. I'm not going to pick up offenses against you. I'm going to, it's going to take me a lot before I cut off relationship with you. What we want to look at is this other element of patience, difficult circumstances that I'm going to say God is behind. I'm not saying he caused or allowed. That's a fruitless argument at this point. Who knows why whatever happens, happens. Sarah says, 
the Lord won't let me have a kid. And ultimately, you could say, yeah, he's the author of life. We don't know what's going on with them. But ultimately, yeah, okay. And for us, you may find yourself in a different, a difficult circumstance, and all you know is, unless God does something, your circumstances are going to remain the same. You can't pin this on anybody. So ultimately, in some sense, we're looking to God, even though we're not necessarily saying God caused this or allowed it or any of that. We're saying ultimately he's the one that's got to do something if these circumstances are going to change. Patience in that situation is endurance. So with people, it's forbearance. I'm going to go along with you, even when it stinks. With God, it's endurance. I need the strength to last, to wait. You see those verses there from Hebrews 6. We don't want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience, there's that combo, inherit what has been promised. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised to him. There's two ditches in this. One is passivity and the other is self-reliance. Passivity, very easy to mask that as faith. You can spiritualize being lazy or doing nothing. Often, if if you're prone to passivity, it most likely is rooted in the fact that you're afraid of being disappointed. And so because you don't want to be disappointed, you don't engage. We don't live in a culture where marriages are arranged. That doesn't happen for us. If you're single and you desire to be married and you're waiting on your parents to fix it, probably not going to happen. There's got to be some part of you that engages in the dating process, whether that's online or in person or however that works. There's got to be some part of you that at least, there's got to be some way you're mixing with people who you could actually get married to. That has to happen. That's your part. If you're not doing that, if you're just staying home and saying, my knight in shining armor is going to kick down my front door, probably not, because you'll call 911. It doesn't, that's not how it works for us. Most likely, that's passivity rooted in the fear of being disappointed. If I don't put myself out there, then I can't be rejected. Or if I don't put myself out there, then my hope is never, I never raise my hope level too high only to have it deferred. Not to be graphic, Abraham and Sarah for 10 years did their part in trying to have a baby. They didn't live in separate quarters and pray for an immaculate conception. They did their part. They weren't passive in that. Ultimately, they couldn't make anything happen, but they had a role to play. If you don't have a job or don't like your job, usually employers hire people who actually apply for jobs. That's what they do. You have a part to play. At a minimum of getting your name out there, of saying, hey, I'm interested, networking and all of those kinds of things. Occasionally you hear the story, I got a call out of the blue. The reason you remember that story is because it hardly ever happens. Usually people... Look, the pool that they're looking from are the folks who have made them, themselves known, who've expressed interest. It's difficult. You're putting yourself out there, which then can, creates the opportunity for disappointment. It's much easier to sit back and in the name of faith, say, if God wants me to have it, then he'll give it to me. Maybe he will, just like that. Maybe you'll get a phone call out of the blue. Often what God says is, I want you to have it, but really what I want you to do is I want you to express some level of trust in me so Take a step and then see what happens. Often that's how it works. So if you know you're prone to passivity, my encouragement to you is to recognize that. Don't spiritualize it and call it faith when really it's just fear of disappointment masquerading. So don't do that. The other ditch is way on the other side. It's self-reliance. 
Abraham and Sarah. Abraham in chapter 12, Sarah in chapter 16. In both cases, Abraham from a place of fear, Sarah from a place of doubt, say, listen, I've got, got to do something about this. Abraham's afraid he's going to get killed. Legitimate fear absolutely could have happened. So he, he lies. Sarah, you're going to tell everybody you're my sister. Creates all kinds of havoc. Sarah from a place of doubt. I've been waiting for 10 years. This isn't. I'm not having a baby. I'm 75 years old. Is this ever going to happen? Here's a culturally acceptable solution to my problem. Here's Hagar. Both of those things are expressions of self-reliance. Neither of those things looks like faith or trust or confidence or reliance upon God. If, you're, if you lean that way, I was talking to somebody in between the services, and she said, I, I go from one ditch to the other. I don't, her word was schema. She said, I don't have a schema for staying on the road. And there isn't one. That's my encouragement to her. There's not one. There's this idea of keeping in step with the Spirit. That's all you can do is walk being led by the Holy Spirit. This is check with me thing. Constantly checking with God. Not because you feel like you're on a tightrope and you're afraid of messing up. But just like you check in with people who you love on a regular basis. Only you and God know your heart. And so whatever it is you're, happen, you're doing, you're just asking God, is this an expression of faith and trust or is this passivity? God, is this an expression of confidence and reliance on you or am I relying on myself? And you trust the Holy Spirit to convict you. He has more invested in your maturity than you do. And so he'll let you know if you're veering off. You don't have to get locked up and so nervous you can't make a decision or take a step forward. But there is this recognition that says, I'm prone to veer one way or the other, and so I'm constantly asking God, hey, am I still on the road of faith here? Am I still trusting in you here? What looked like trust two months ago might not look like trust now. You may be asking me to do something different, and I want to be sensitive to that. So when this idea of self-reliance, if you tend to fall in that direction, that's where self-control comes into play. The underlying self-control is this idea of mastery, that I'm the master over my desires and over my actions. It's interesting as Christians, we're under the lordship of Jesus, that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. One we don't talk about a lot, but it's in there. The Holy Spirit, just like he produces patience, that's one of the fruit of the Spirit as well. He also produces self-control. There's this book, Switch. Uh, you may or may not have read it. It's several years old. It's about change. They talk about a study, some researchers. They're, they're studying self-control, and so they pull together this group of college kids. And they put them in a room, and they bake these chocolate chip cookies, and they're fresh, and they put them on a plate. And they put a bowl of radishes right next to them. And they tell these kids, y'all eat chocolate chip cookies. Y'all only eat radishes, no chocolate chip cookies. And then they step outside, and they look through the one-way glass to see what everybody does. The radish people only eat radishes. They all follow the rules. And the chocolate chip people all eat chocolate chip cookies. None of them eat radishes. Because why would you if you had chocolate chip cookies? So everybody does what they're supposed to. And then a different set of researchers comes back in and says, hey, we're going to bring you all in tomorrow to talk to you about what you remember about this experiment. But before we do, since we've got you here, we had a group of high school kids take this geometry quiz for us. And you all are in college, and we just want to see if you all can do better than them. These kids are really bright. They're really sharp. And we just want to measure high school and college. They're kind of appealing to these guys their pride, and all of those things. And so they give them this geometry puzzle that's impossible. It's unsolvable. They don't tell them that. So they give it to the chocolate chip cookie group. And the guys that ate chocolate chip cookies, just to make sure I get this right, they tried, they tried for 19 minutes before they quit, 34 times. 
So all of you, this impossible puzzle, 19 minutes, 34 tries. The radish people, all of you, you give up after 8 minutes. You try it 16 times. Self-control is an exhaustible resource. It's not unlimited. Y'all used your self-control not eating cookies. So you didn't have as much left to continue to try an incredibly frustrating puzzle. So there's been multiple studies that show we run out of it. Those of you who have children, they use all of their self-control at school. And what happens at 3 o'clock when they get home? Boom! Everywhere, right? It's because they used it all. You'd rather them use it at school, right? You don't give them ISS or anything. Well, maybe you do. So that may help you parenting-wise, just keeping in mind, they burned whatever they had in school. They got none left for you. So you've got to kind of help. Maybe there's some things you can help with that. But for us, self-control is important so we don't pull a Hagar. That's what happened with Sarah. She just ran out. She had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. At some point, her patience ran out. And then she said, rather than waiting on God anymore, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. She was not the master of her desires at that point. Her desires were the master of her. In that crisis of self-control, she says to Abraham, here, take her. And then she reaps personally 20 years of grief from that. And our world is still reaping grief from that. The, the Seeing self-control as a fruit of the Spirit, what does that look like? The Holy Spirit doesn't make us do anything. He doesn't control you. He doesn't force. He fills. That's in Ephesians. Constantly be filled with the Spirit. That's gas in your tank, empowering you to live a life of obedience. He guides. GPS helps you know where to turn. But He doesn't turn for you. And so when I say the whole the self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, for me, in my flesh, I have X amount of willpower. If I say no to chocolate chip cookies all day long, at some point, I'm going to run out of willpower and I'm going to eat about 30 of them. That's what happens. You do the same thing, whatever that looks like for you. We're all prone to Hagar in some way, relying on ourselves. If I recognize the source of self-control is the Holy Spirit and He lives within me, guess what? He's not limited. He never runs out. And so then my resources go from my limited amount of willpower to his infinite amount of this fruit, this self-control that he can form in me. He won't make me say no to the chocolate chip cookies. I still have to say no. I still have to say no to Hagar, whatever that is. But he can give me the grace to actually do that. It's not a foregone conclusion that I'm going to binge. I can actually have a choice in the moment. If I'm praying something like this, God, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I've waited long enough. Honestly, I'm a little bit angry at you. I don't get why you're making me wait as long as you are. And I'm at the end of my rope. I recognize your spirit lives within me and that he can produce self-control in me. And if he doesn't, I'm about to jump the rails. I know I've got to make a choice and I want to continue to live in faith and trust. I want to rely on you, but I'm telling you, I'm getting close to the end, and if you don't infuse me with power, if you don't help me make a choice that says yes to faith, I'm going. this thing is going to burn, and I'm going to be the one that strikes the match. There's got to be that recognition in you and in me that says, 
you've got to produce this in me. Same thing with patience. God, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm tired of waiting. You've got to renew patience in me. Because my tendency is to check out and say, well, this is just something God's not going to do. I've got to live with it. And I can spiritualize it and say it's my cross or whatever. But honestly, it's me disengaging. And so I need you to give me patience with this. To continue to endure. To stand firm to the end. To continue to endure like Abraham did. If it's 25 years, I don't want that. But I need your grace in order to be able to hang in there with you. Otherwise, I'm going to throw in the towel. I'm just going to quit. I'm going to quit asking. It's what Ann was talking about. I'm just going to quit asking for that. There needs to be a recognition in us that that's God's at work in us. You don't have to figure out how do I create in myself an inner sense of rest and calm in difficult circumstances. You can't over time. It's his work. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of you. How do, I ex- how do I exercise mastery over my desires and behaviors? You can't long term. We're all weak. It's his activity in you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. So as we wrap, I can't give you steps. I'm sorry. All I can say is you want to, I hope. What I want for you is to stay in faith. So here's the road. That's a ditch and that's a ditch. I don't want passivity. I don't want to disengage and call it faith. I want to continue to say, what's my responsibility in this? What does it look like for me to stand on the chair? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to constantly get on the chair. I talked to somebody last week, and they said, every time I'm on it, I feel like it crumbles. Am I supposed to get on it again? And I said, I'm sorry. Yes. That's what it looks like. You constantly, he's constantly asking for us to stand on the chair. I don't want to fall in this ditch and begin to rely on myself and say, God, You're not working fast enough. You're not working in the way I want, so let me help you out. Either from fear like Abraham or doubt like Sarah, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. No. I need to exercise some self-control there. I need to stay on this road. And again, that's a check with me thing. God, I'm going to constantly be asking you, is this faith or not? Is this trust or not? I'm not going to get balled up. I'm not going to get tight. I'm not going to sweat and go, oh, am I messing up? Just... As a son, I want to please you. Without faith, I can't do that. So I'm just asking now, am I walking in faith or not? Trusting that you're more invested in my salvation than I am, and so you'll convict me if I've fallen into that ditch or that one. Is that good? Let's pray. God, I want to pray for everyone in this room, for, all, for each of us, that we would learn what it is to walk by faith. God, I pray for those of us who are prone to passivity, that you would convict us. Ultimately, that's a reflection on two things. One, the fact that we're tired of being disappointed. And two, ultimately, it's that we don't believe you to do what you said you would do. So I pray for those who are falling into that ditch, that you would convict and pull them out, that they would, like Ann said this morning, they would just ask you again. They get back on the chair, even though it's been pulled out from under them time and time again. God, I pray for those of us who are like Sarah and We're prone to self-reliance, figuring things out. We're at the end of our rope, and we're just tired of waiting. God, I pray that you would give us self-control, that we would know the behaviors that we're and the desires that are kind of running the show for us are going to lead us to, to no good. We would submit those things to you. For all of us, the only way for patience and self-control to be formed in us is to actually 
exercise them. It's like learning to play a sport. It's not like learning about geology in class. It's not book smarts. You've got to, it's training, which can be difficult because the circumstances stretch us by definition. So help those of us who are in those stretching circumstances where you're trying to form within us patience and self-control because ultimately you want us to look as much like your son as possible. Stir those things, grow those things in us. And God, I also want to pray if there are any couples in this room who can relate directly to Sarah. Maybe it hasn't been 10 years, but it's been, a, it's been a lot of years. And there's no children. Or there's not enough. God, I pray that you would, if they're thinking for fertility and IVF, maybe adoption, all these different options for them. I pray that you would speak and they would know what is a step of faith trusting in you and what's not. What's passivity and what's self-reliance. And ultimately, God, we pray that you would take the question off the table because they would concede. And there'd be children in those homes where there's not right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams in the corner and we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. If you're one of those couples looking for kids, we'd love to pray with you about that or anything else that's happening in your life. And Bo will dismiss us when this song is over.